Now, we're doing a teaching today that all of you guys are familiar with, at least if you've been in the church any period of time. It's Jesus feeding the 5,000, and really, it's, it's, it's the women and the children. So it's twenty or 30,000 people that were fed here. And we just kind of gloss over this. And I, wanted, it was an, I consider this an impossible miracle. And you'll know why as we go through this. This is an amazing thing that Jesus did. Now, he did all kinds of things. You know, when he cast out demons and he healed the sick and he healed the lame and he healed the eyes and the ears, those are all huge things. But when you see the gravity of what he did here, I think you're going to be blown away. He did an amazing thing. Also, when I talk about you and the impossible, look, at God can enter into any situation that you're going through. He can do a miracle. He is a miracle-working God. He is a God of the impossible. But I want to also tell you, when I'm thinking of the impossible, I'm also suggesting to you that not everything's going to be great and wonderful here. You know that people are going to get diseases. People are going to die. People are going to have situations that are uncomfortable. You're going to have financial stress, emotional stress, physical stress. And sometimes God will relieve those stresses, and sometimes he won't. But he takes you through the impossible. So when I talk about the impossible, God can enter into that and change that, or he can give you the strength to go through that. And I think you can identify with that. If you're being honest, you have a God that will go through the fire, through the floods, through everything in life with you. Now, before we start, I want you to take just a minute to detach from this world and to be ready to receive from God today what he has for you special for you. You will hear this talk, and one person will hear this, and one person will hear that. But God has something specific that he wants to communicate with you. And I would ask you to prepare your heart right now, just 15 seconds, to receive from God. Go to him in prayer, in your heart. Our Father, I pray today that you'll pour out your spirit on everyone in this room and everyone in this room will receive from you today the things that you want them to hear specific for them. Lord, please do your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we read the word of God together. We honor God by standing when we read his word. Matthew chapter 14, 15 through 21. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down in the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for your word, the inerrant, infallible word of the living God that you've given us as a guideline, as a, as a guidepost for going through this life. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts today, things that you'd like us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, as you know by now, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the coming king. 
There is a king coming that is going to establish a kingdom. I say this every week, but I just want to remind you because we're living in a world that is more and more anti-God's kingdom. We're living in a world as really as aliens and strangers, and it's uncomfortable here to realize the king is coming. The king is coming, and hopefully he's coming for you to be part of his kingdom. Now, last time we met, we talked about John the Baptist being beheaded. And Herodias, who was Philip's wife, stolen by Herod Antipas, hated John the Baptist and wanted his head on a platter. John the Baptist was beheaded, and then Jesus found out about this by John's, John's disciples came and reported to Jesus what happened. Now, Jesus is a little bit distressed, and he's going to leave. Now, he, he experiences death. His friend John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, has died. And so Jesus is going to withdraw to a quiet place. That's verse 13 and 15 in our text from last week. And we know that he, he went to a deserted place. But I didn't share with you that last week the full context, or last time we met, the full context of this, of this story. Mark gives clarification in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. He says that the 12 were returning from casting out demons and doing miracles and teaching and that sort of thing. They were exhausted. At the same time, Jesus is, is grieving the, the passing of John the Baptist. And so now they're going to make their escape by boat, okay, into, into Bethsaida. Now, we have learned a few things in the last lesson that I want to just reemphasize here for you this week. When you're overwhelmed with life, do what Jesus does. He gets alone with Father. Have a place where you meet on a regular basis with your God. And there you pour out your heart to him. Secondly, we learn that Herods are evil. All these Herod, there was four of them. The Herod Antipas was a tetrarch. He was leader of one of four areas. Other sons inhabited these, or were in charge of these areas. They were all evil, evil men. That's what you want to remember. Herods are in your life. They come in many shapes and sizes. They can come in a person. They can come in the form of a situation. They can come in the form of a physical or emotional uh, disturbance in your life. They come it make many manifestations. Crud happens, folks, and you know that that's a reality in this world. Now, what you also know is this. Herods come and Herods go. That's just part of life. They come in and they come out of your life. They mess up your life. But the greatest thing that you have in the midst of a Herod attack, no matter what it is, is the presence of God, the promises of God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding is available to you, but you must appropriate that peace in the midst of a Herod moment. So Jesus is feeling the weight of John's death. And in verse 13 last week, when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, Jesus is getting ready to make his escape. You're going to see a slide come up here on the screen, and it's going to be Jesus is in Capernaum. Jesus is doing his miracles here, and now he's going to escape. He is depressed. No, I don't want to say Jesus is depressed, but Jesus is distressed. At least we can say that by John the Baptist. Uh, his disciples are exhausted from ministry that they've gone out two by two, and they're going to go in a boat from here to Bethsaida. Now, this is about six miles, and you notice how it hugs the shore. The multitudes are going to see Jesus taking off, and they want to follow Jesus. 
They went, and this is about a six-mile trek. In Mark, it says many of them ran to keep up with Jesus. Jesus was very popular, and people wanted to be around him. But oftentimes, it wasn't for the right reasons. A lot of times, people followed Jesus for the show, for the performance. What's Jesus going to do next? It's an exciting thing. Remember, in the 60s and the 70s, which most of you guys know nothing about, but anyway, it was a key point in my life. There was something called a happening. It could have been a theater moment. It could be something that people did in the field. It was a happening where everybody got together and celebrated. Well, Jesus was a happening in this culture. And he was followed. He was popular. And people couldn't wait to see exactly what Jesus would do next. He was entertaining. What's Jesus going to do? That's really kind of the concept and the setting. So now we have this week, the fish, the loaves, you, and the impossible. Starting in verse 15, the disciples are just too tired for the impossible. Now, I think you're going to be able to identify with being tired in this overstressed, overpaced life that we live in. Verse 15, when it was evening, so the whole day is going on here, and the multitudes are chasing me, they're trying to get away. His disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, a desert place. There's nothing there. Jesus has escaped to a place he can be alone with Father, and all these people are just inundating his life. It's already late. Send the multitudes away. These are the disciples. Send them away, Jesus, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, let me ask you a question. Where are the villages? It's a desert. It's a deserted place. These disciples are doing something amazing. They're using a lot of God talk and Jesus speak, but more on that in just a second. So the 12 are are returning from ministry. They're tired. Jesus is probably exhausted too. And I want you to really get this. Ministry will cause you to be extended into areas of discomfort, tiredness, oftentimes exhaustion. We cannot do ministry in the natural We must do ministry out of the filling and overflow of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we will burn out. What is ministry? Ministry is simply service. It is whatever your calling is. Now, each one of you have been born again into the family of God, received Jesus Christ as your Savior, became a Christian. At that moment, the Holy Spirit gave you a spiritual gift. And in that, that is the area where your calling is. And you do your calling in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, service implies sacrifice. It will always, always, always cost you to serve God. It will always cost you sacrifice. But it's always worth the price. You can never outgive God. Never. So as a Christian, you want to remember this. Our family is ministry. Everything that you do is ministry. It, this is, everybody has this concept, okay, that dude up there, he does ministry. I watch. I watch, and I hear, and I might accept some things and not other things. No, we're all in ministry together. And I think this was actually talked about a little bit last week. We're all, in, we're all called to do something. It's our family is a ministry. Your work is a ministry. Your entire life is a ministry. Husbands to your wives, wives to your husbands, parents to your children. Children, yes, you have a ministry or responsibility to your parents. Where where you go to school, where you work, everything is ministry. So ministry must be done, now hear this, 
out of the overflow of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do this thing, this Christian life, without the power of the Holy Spirit. That is an absolute requisite. You cannot do it in your own strength. If you do, you will burn out. You will burn out and be ineffective. The disciples were trying to do this, their ministry in their own strength. Well, I have a question for you. Ever been there? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Have you ever done this? Yes, you have been there. They do not. Now, remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit at this point. So you have something that they didn't have at this point. Remember, they didn't get the Holy Spirit until John chapter 20, verse 22, when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, take a pause. I want you to think about three things about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into you at the time of salvation. He seals you. You belong to God. You have an inheritance. But, you don't, but he also gives you the power to do your calling. The power to do your calling. This happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Remember Acts 1.8 at Pentecost. That's when the power came. That is when the church was empowered to do its ministry, to do its calling, to do its service for God. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that's going to come up on the screen. You're going to see the dove, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be having, you've heard the word umpteen times here, dunamis power, all Greek words that start in the prefix duna means capable, able. The Holy Spirit will enable you to do your calling. So you've been born again of the Spirit. The Spirit seals you. He protects you. He, he's going to get you home safely. The Spirit of God can come upon you with power to do your calling. And the third thing is the Spirit of God is the parakletos. You know what that is. He's your comforter. He goes through life with you. Folks, we need the comforter. We need the comforter. Ministry, folks, is not easy. But we're, we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The Lord Jesus Christ. Kurios. He is our master. He is our ruler. He is our owner. We owe him everything because he gave everything to us. We are to give everything to him. We are to not hold back. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, I think Jesus wants us to have two things that would really demonstrate that we're true followers of him. Number one, bondservant. You see that word all through scripture, bondservant, bondservant, bondservant. And you know that word is doulos, a doulos, my will consumed with the will of the master. That's what the, that's what the definition of a bondservant is. You are also ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal for us. So we have two things. We are bondservants of Christ, and we give it all to him, and we are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, we, and, and the significant thing there, when you think about a bondservant or an ambassador, you're going to look different than the rest of the world. You're not going to sound like, smell like, talk like, live like, do life like the rest of the world does. You're in a different kingdom, serving a different king, and we are to be different and separate from the world. We are to impact our world, but folks, we are not to be like the world. So as a bondservant, number one, you want to know who you are. 
You are unique. You have been created by God individually. You don't have to be like somebody else. God loves you exactly like you are, developing you, of course, being conformed to the likeness of Christ in a process of change, but know who you are. Secondly, accept who you are. And thirdly, be who you are. Don't be a phony. Don't be a phony, baloney Christian having a lot of God talk and Jesus speak, but no life to match the talk. That's the important thing. If you do that, people will know that you have been with Jesus and what a difference he makes in our lives. Jesus never saved anybody to be the same. He saved us to be different, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Now, we know that Jesus went to a deserted place and to a desert place, and the disciples are going to come to him and say, send the multitudes away. It's going to be dark. Have them feed themselves, Jesus. Now, it sounds like they might have been concerned about all this multitude, but I think behind it all, the disciples were kind of concerned about themselves. It's tired, I'm t and it's dark here, Jesus. I mean, this thing's got to end sometime. Did you ever, th ever think that? When is this going to end? When are the people going to stop coming? And they just keep coming. The disciples are, are, are going to go through something here. They're going to unknowingly have a Jesus test. Now, those tests come at inopportune times in our lives. That's what makes it a real test, a real test. And why is he testing? To test what they have learned. They've gone out two by two. They've done all kinds of miracles. See, they're in preparation for when Jesus leaves to follow, to complete Jesus's ministry. We're in preparation today to continue to go out to do what Jesus did to impact the world around us. They are having a test. They're having a test. Faith, folks, is always, always tested. It is not just lip service. I love Jesus. I love him. I love, I really do. And you, you don't serve him at all. I love him. Okay. Faith is always tested. Is our faith genuine or is our faith conditional or is it unconditional? That's the question. The test will reveal the truth. And these guys are going to be tested. In verse 16 and 17, the test is this. You feed them. Jesus tell them, you feed them. And I thought this, an impossible test. I'm looking at these guys and I'm thinking, they must have thought, wow, I've seen this guy do a lot of stuff, but now he wants us to do this? Hold, your, hold on to your hat. Verse 16 and 17. Then Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And I imagine at that point they went gulp. They just took a hard swallow and went, what are you talking about? And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fishes, and this is impossible, Jesus. What are you saying that we're supposed to do? John adds this. The apostle John adds this. Jesus said to Philip, one of the disciples, in John chapter 6, verse 5, interesting thing, he's, he selects him out, and all the other disciples are in the group. They hear exactly what's going on. Okay, he talks to Philip. He says to Philip, where are we to buy bread, Philip? Desert, nothing there, impossible. So that these 20 or 30,000 may eat. 
This he was saying to test him. Philip must have thought, just like you would think in the natural, this is impossible. I mean, come on, Jesus. I mean, impossible, impossible. But folks, I want to suggest something to you. When it looks impossible, that's when Jesus enters. That's when God enters. He's a God of the impossible. The disciples are still in training, and folks, so are we. You're in Jesus school. When I say Jesus school, that's your life. That is your life. You're in training for a different place. You know when you graduate? Hopefully you graduate with some sort of honors instead of just sliding in like at the Bema Seat Judgment, you know, the wood, hay, and stubble, and gold, silver, and precious stones. What are you going to have for your, for your works? Are you going to just slide into heaven? Hopefully you're going to have something that, that will demonstrate that you were real. They're still thinking in the natural, folks, and oftentimes so do we. We say, oh, this is impossible. This person can never be saved. This situation can never change. Oh, yes, it can. Oh, yes, it can. Remember, Jesus is supernatural. Jesus is God of the impossible. I want you to think about something. There's a little picture here that I got off, off the Internet, and it says this. Now, when you're thinking impossible... Kick him off. Just push that dude right over the cliff, and with God, all things are possible. Just put this in your brain. Place it in your brain. Don't let this escape you. We're living in a world that things are changing at rapid, rapid, rapid pace, and we're feeling the discomfort from it, and we're feeling like, oh, this thing is getting impossible. No. The Spirit of God dwells within you. He'll give you the strength to make it through. You can represent God where you are, no matter how much this culture changes. He is the God of the possible. So, the problem is this. We oftentimes don't believe it. We oftentimes don't believe it. Now, look, at our part is this. I don't care what something looks like, sounds like, smells like. I'm going to trust God. Okay, remember Richard Farmer? Remember our saying, I will trust, you could say it, in the Lord until I die. That is, the, that is the quote that we use here often. I will trust in the Lord no matter what. My part is to believe and trust Him. God's part is to do the miracle. God's part, and that miracle includes changing the situation or taking me through the situation, giving me the strength. Not everything's going to be cherry and wonderful and ice cream, little cherry with an ice cream on top in your life. It will not be that way. You know that. That's the truth. That's the truth of life. But also the truth of life is that God gives you the power to go through whatever you're experiencing. You know, John the Baptist died. He, had his, he was beheaded. And you know, in the last teaching, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace and they were delivered. Both glorified God. Both situations glorified God. Now, I want to give you some examples of something. Uh, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a prophet. Jeremiah is experiencing an impossible situation. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet knows that the nation is going into captivity for 70 years, Babylonian captivity. The sins of the nation have reached its pinnacle, and there's no return there's no repentance that's going to work at this point, and it's very discouraging to Jeremiah. 
because he's facing a lot of abuse in speaking the truth in the culture that he's in. You understand that? He's experiencing, there's a, a false prophets that are saying, everything's wonderful and great, Hezekiah. Or Zechariah, or what is his name? Zedekiah. Zedekiah, thank you. Kiah, whatever your Kiah name is. Anyway, everything's great. And the, the false prophets were telling the king, I guess I can leave the guy's name out, uh, that everything's wonderful and terrific and the Babylonians aren't going to be victorious and that sort of thing. And God says, oh yes, oh yes, this will happen. This is causing the people of God to be distressed. And in verse 16, it says this, 31:16. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back to the land of the enemy, come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord. This looked impossible. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king in the history of the earth, and a human-wise, from a human standpoint, was wiping out everything, and he decimated everything. And he's coming to Jerusalem because Zedekiah had rebelled against him, wouldn't pay him any more tribute, and their people are concerned. Now, Jeremiah is thrown in prison immediately after this because he goes to Zedekiah, and he tells him the truth. And Zedekiah says, oh, you always prophesy falsely. You always prophesy wrong things about what's going to happen. He's always telling him the truth. He just doesn't want to hear the truth. And he throws him in prison. It is in prison that God visits him and says, I want you to buy a field, Jeremiah. I want you to buy a field. And I think Jeremiah is going, really? Buy a field? I'm in prison. How do I do this? Well, somehow it all happened and he bought the field because that would be a deed of ownership that when the people came back, they would come back to an owned place, an owned place. So what happens after that is Jeremiah gets a little exuberant. In Jeremiah 32, 17, you'll see these words come up on the screen. I think this is just so incredible. If I can find my little pointer here. Yes. Nothing is too hard for God. Absolutely nothing. He says these words, and may this resonate through your being. Ah, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, Yahweh Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is too hard for you. That is what he's thinking at that moment. Fast forward a little bit in time. Jeremiah sees the nation changing. And in Jeremiah 32, 24, Nebuchadnezzar is here. It's one thing warning that it's coming. It's another thing when it's here, when it hits your doorstep, when the problem becomes so real that it's staring you right in the face. Look, the siege mounds, they have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar's army, who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence what you have spoken has happened here. There you see it. God spoke it. It happened just like the prophet said. You have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Now watch Jeremiah. 
He's just like, he's just a man, okay? He's a man like, like we are men and women. He is a man that is, is impacted by his life situations. Yet the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. What are we going to do, God? This doesn't seem possible. And then God speaks directly to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27, we see these words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Don't you just love that? The rescue comes right at the moment he needs it. Right at the second. The God of possibilities enters in and he says this. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And Jeremiah realizes that God can do anything. He is a God of promise keeping. Those people will come back in 70 years and they will re-inhabit their land because the God of impossibilities had entered their situation. Now, I want you to think about something. Jeremiah had a test. Your life is just chuck full of tests. I mean, every single day you live, you're in a test. You're still in school. These tests won't end until you're out of here. You think at some point you're going to get someplace, you can hide someplace. If I move here, I'm going to have less tests. If I go in this place, I'm going to have less tests. Oh, it's going to be a lot better. No. Wherever you go, you will be tested. Think about this. The disciples were thinking in the natural in their test. They saw the obstacle. They saw the problem. Can you identify? Just say yes. Yeah, you shake your head. I mean, so wake up, shake your head. Yes, you can identify. You can, we see, they see the obstacle. Now, pessimism says can't be done. Impossible, can't be done. And look at, you're looking at someone here that the cup is always half empty. It is never half full. So this speaks to people like me who are by nature, huh? This can't happen, huh? No, no, God can do anything. You can even take somebody like me and transition that person to start thinking a little bit more positive. So pessimism says it can't be done. It won't get any better. Nothing will change. We're doomed. The sky is falling. It's coming to an end. That's pessimism. And then you can say, oh, really? Because you've eliminated God from that. But optimism says all things are possible with God. Why? Because God is in ultimate control. God is sovereign like it was on the picture. We are not sovereign. The situation is not sovereign. God is sovereign. You never know when God is going to change the situation. The disciples still have much to learn, folks, and so do we. It's just that we, we never get it. We're, we're never going to have it all. Look, at remember in your life when you were the smartest? The smartest time in the world is from age 15 to about age 21. You know everything. Your dad doesn't know anything. Your teacher's a screwball. The professor, he doesn't know anything. I mean, you're, everybody's nuts besides you. Then all of a sudden, you start to realize, hmm, they had some life experience. Maybe they had something there. And before you know it, dad's, God, dad has wisdom. Well, there's somebody we can turn to. Yeah, you think you're really smart. Uh, we have much to learn. Jesus says, Bring, them, bring the fish and the loaves to me. Now, I want you to take a hard stop here and just take a look at what this might have been like. There's a picture that's coming up here on the screen. 
Now, picture this. Now, Jesus had separated these people into groups of 50 and 100. You got 20 or 30,000 people here separated in groups of 50 to 100. Now, the disciples, there's 12 of these dudes. They have to feed 20 to 30,000 people. Now, remember, they haven't just gotten up, had a nice breakfast, getting ready for their day. It's the end of the day. They're starving. They're hungry. And they're getting ready to feed a mass of people. 20,000 people. Now, I actually don't understand how this was pulled off. Because it's just before dark. You want to get it done before dark. Because remember what happens in the desert when it's dark? Who comes out? It, well, it gets cold. But then you get the jackals that come out. You get all these animals that always oh, they they start appearing. You know, and it becomes a dangerous place. A dangerous place. It's, I, they must have thought this. Jesus is telling us to do this. It's going to get interesting. It's going to get interesting here. Philip, Philip, it's going to get it. Peter, it's going to get interesting. Bartholomew, can you believe it? Jesus is about ready to do something. So verse 18 through 21, Jesus enters the impossible situation. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded, who's in charge of this 20 or 30,000? Jesus is in charge. He commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And I can just see Jesus. Put yourself up 50 and 100, sit. And just magically, just boom, it's just perfect. I, that's just how I'm thinking. But multitudes to sit, nobody's saying, why do we have to sit down? I don't feel like sitting down. I don't want to sit in this group. I want to sit in this group. I don't like this, you know, no, I don't think there's any of that. I think they just went boom, boom. And he took the five loaves and two fish, and I always want to say fishes. The two fishes. The two fish. I guess that's plural. And looking up to heaven. And then he blessed and he broke and he gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples then gave to the multitudes. It's a handoff. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 basketfuls of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Again, 20 to 30,000 hungry people. I'll tell you, when Jesus fed them, it wasn't, I'll give you a minnow. You have a minnow and a crumb. Now, these people were full to satisfy, and more on that in just a second. So Jesus brings order out of the chaos. He sets them in groups of 50 to 100, and then he takes the loaves and the fishes. And what does that mean? He prays. The first thing Jesus does, and he, this is a demonstration for us, folks. This is a demonstration for us. He said, blessed, blessed. There's two words in Greek for blessed. One is markarios. You saw it in the Beatitudes. Blessed are this and blessed are that and blessed are this. Markarios, fully satisfied. A full life. You do things God's way. This is eulogio. A eulogy, speaking well of someone. But it also has this, this meaning. To consecrate as solemn to God. When you say a blessing, it's you're consecrating to God. You're setting something apart unto God. This food, I'm saying a blessing. Blessed, and he broke and gave the loaves to his disciples. Folks, there's a lesson for us here. The disciples then distribute the blessings of God to the people. You are disciples of Christ who are called to distribute what you know, the blessings of God, to people you come in contact with. Every one of us. 
Every one of us. Now, Jesus is demonstrating something here that is just mind-blowing to me. First of all, Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. The deity of Christ is on display here. This is an only God moment. There's no magician that can do this. There's no Egyptian wizard like they had in Egypt at the time of Pharaoh that can try to duplicate. And there's nobody that can do anything like this. There's no demon. There's no nothing that can do anything like this. Jesus is the creator. The deity of Christ is on display. Jesus is the one who created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. I don't know if you know this, but in Genesis 1-1 where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That word created is bara. In the Hebrew, it means create out of nothing. In the, in the Latin, is, it, it is ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. Create out of nothing. The heavens and the earth. Jesus is creating here. He's multiplying these loaves. Now, John is going to clarify the Apostle John in John chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, who did the creation. Watch what it says. All things were made through him and for him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but came to bear witness of that light. And this is the key, John 1, 9, the true light that gives light to every man, every human being coming into the world had come. Jesus, Messiah, the light of the world. Paul adds this about the wonderment of Jesus in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That word consist means stand together, held together. Think about that word for just a second. Jesus is God. He holds the whole universe together. He holds every atom inside of your being together. He is the God of the macro creation all the way down to the micro creation, the smallest thing, the little organelles in your cells, the little mitochondria and ribosomes and that sort of thing. He is the God that orchestrates and holds it all together. Now, Johannes Kepler gives us a little indication of the vastness of God. I've shared this with you in the last 15 years that I've been teaching here at least once. So some of you may remember that 1% that you might have remembered 10 years ago. But anyway, Johannes Kepler is the father of modern astronomy. This guy lived 1571 to 1630. Hear what he says. The earth is spinning at 100,000 miles per hour. As it, now, there's, there's, did you ever get, we're in movement here, folks. We're in movement. I mean, real movement. As it spins, it moves around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. The sun is moving at 64,000 miles per hour. The whole galaxy is moving through space, isn't this incredible, at 450,000 miles per hour. Folks, at 1,350,000 miles per hour, everything's just going like, it just all is moving. It's, there's movement here. So you understand that. Then he says there are millions and other stars and galaxies moving in all directions. Who keeps the whole thing from colliding? Kepler was right. 
There has to be an orderer, and that orderer is God. That order is God. By Him, all things consist, are held together. That's our God. Folks, we serve a mighty, mighty God. Jesus, who created and holds all things together, including the atoms in your body, fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. Folks, minor miracle for Jesus. This is a nothing. Now think about your life, this impossible thing in your life. Look, maybe Jesus will take it away, or maybe he won't. But I can guarantee you, he is a God that will go through the fire with you. He will be with you through it all. And he tells you several times in Scripture, I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. I am the Lord your God. I am with you. You can know this for, as truth. You will get through. You will get through. In Exodus chapter 16, we see the people in Israel have been delivered from Pharaoh and the armies and all that miracle of the, of the ten plagues and that sort of thing. And, and God's going to provide them with manna. Remember what the word manna is? It means, what is it? And it's bread from heaven. He's going to feed them. Now think of this massive undertaking of feeding two million people in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay? Now, there's a guy named Don Smith. He comments on this. This is a quote from Don. He says, Many Bible scholars estimate the multitude in the wilderness to be upwards of 2 million people. Now think this. Six pints of manna was, allowed, was to be collected for every person. That would be 12 million pints per day. It would take 10 trains, each pulling 30 boxcars filled with manna every day to feed this multitude. Now multiply that by 40 years. He didn't even do the math. <laughs> but you can imagine the, the, the number of boxcars and manna that went out. Showed how God showered his blessings on this people. He goes on to say, Bread from heaven was always more than each person needed, and yet they complained and grumbled. Can you identify? Living in America as a Christian, we have so much. And yet we grumble so freely. That's another thing. Murmurs. Murmurs. I would have been right in that crowd with the murmurs, whining and complaining. The leeks. I need the leeks of Egypt. I need the meat of Egypt. And maybe you would have too. Maybe you would have too. He goes on to say this. Manna is a picture of Jesus and the bread of life. As the Hebrew multitudes followed God in the wilderness, so the multitudes followed Christ. As their forefathers lacked food, so they, those gathered in Galilee were hungry. As God used Israel's hunger to test their faith, so Jesus used this opportunity to test Philip and the disciples' faith. And God provided more than what was needed in the wilderness, and the apostles collected more than what was needed on the hillside. Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus also calls himself the bread of life. Now, there's going to be a picture coming up here that I'm going to address in just a second. But a prelude to that, I want to give you a picture of what's going on. Jesus is giving a talk about the bread of life. And he's just walked on water, and now the people are following him, and they want to make him a king. They want Jesus to take over. They want Jesus to keep feeding them the natural bread. 
And in John 6, 26, Jesus addresses the multitude. And he says these words, you seek me, not because you saw the signs or the miracles, because you, but because you ate the bread and were filled. You're seeking me because you want more bread. You want more physical stuff. And then Jesus says these words that you see on the screen. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They're still thinking in the physical. We want that bread. Now, you think they're going to be satisfied with bread? They're going to want peanut butter and jelly. They're going to want something else to put on that. People are never satisfied. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He's talking spiritual here, folks. He who comes to me shall never hunger spiritually, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst spiritually. You will be fully satisfied, makarios, blessed, if you come to Jesus. Fully satisfied. Now, the Jewish leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying in that text. In John 6, 41, they complain, saying, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. They were complaining and whining because Jesus was claiming to come from heaven and to be God on earth. The feeding of the 5,000 was important to four groups, folks. The disciples, the few believers that were following, the unbelievers that saw the miracles that hopefully became believers, and you today that are reading about this miracle. There's a lesson, folks. Our job is to give and distribute the truth about Jesus to a culture that has been lied to over and over and over. We have a job to do to tell people the truth about Jesus. Tell them about the real Jesus. The Jesus that died for them, the Jesus that loves them, the Jesus wants them into their family, but also the Jesus that if you reject, he's coming back as a conquering king. And you'll live separated from him forever. And he doesn't want that. Scripture is very plain that all be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. Our job is to distribute. A few will receive and believe. But folks, unfortunately, most will reject and most will refuse to believe. How do we know that? Because Jesus said the end time church would be the Laodicean apostasy church. The church that has fallen away. And doesn't really want Jesus. Wants all the glitter of the world and put a caption of we're church on it. Big difference. Jesus to you and me. I am the bread of life. I am all that you need. And I will give you more than you need to sustain you on this journey called your life. Some applications for us today. Jesus, as you know, performs this phenomenal miracle. This is a blown away miracle. This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. It impressed the disciples that much. God is a God of the impossible, folks. We have to believe this. We must believe this. We, and, I, and I really believe this with all of my heart as we see our culture changing right before our eyes. We will need to remember this going forward in our future. We all face hardship. And folks, I believe very likely the true church, we may suffer persecution. Now, I'm not all cheery about that. That's, that's great and wonderful, but if we can serve our God 
and glorify him, then I'm cheery. He'll give me the strength to make it through. We will all be faced with impossible situations over and over. And folks, it's time to reflect on what you have learned in this lesson. Remember C.S. Lewis said these words, He is God, I tell you. He is God, I tell you. He is God of the impossible, I tell you. He is God. Jesus did seven signs in the book of John that demonstrated that he was God incarnate. Seven signs to reveal his identity. He turned, and this picture will become up on the screen. Jesus turned water into wine. Nobody can do that but God. Jesus healed the official son. Jesus healed the, the paralytic. Jesus walked on water. There's been no pre reproducible to that one. Ever see somebody say, well, I think we can do everything Jesus did. Oh, really? Really? No, you cannot. You're not walking on water. Try feeding the multitudes. Then he gives sight to the blind man. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Folks, you are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must know something. Know that you know that Jesus has the power to do the impossible. He has the power to change anything or the power to get you through anything. Isaiah 43 verses 2 and, two and 3 really speak to the nation of Israel and God taking them through their misery and their stuff or relieving them. He can relieve it, but I want you to hear this verse, and you probably are familiar with it. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's bad stuff. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Think of the hurricanes and that sort of thing. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God. How personal is that? Your God, the nation of Israel, you born again of the Spirit. Your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He's saying, I am with you. In the impossible, folks, the most important thing that we have, we might not be delivered, but we have the presence of our Lord with us through the whole thing. Until we get home, hold on to the God of the impossible. Now, look, it. I picture it this way. We're holding on to God. He's holding on to us. Now, who's going to slip? Who's going to slip? I'm going to slip. I'm going to get tired. God is not going to get tired. He's going to hold on to you until you get home. He's holding on to you. He will not let you go. And God can change anything or anyone. He'll get you through anything, the fires, the flood, and that sort of thing. But if you have a tendency to worry, which I think most humans do, it's part of the curse. Remember, fear came in with the fall. No fear was planned on this existing. No worry was planned on existing in our world. It came in with the fall of man. The God of the impossible has a word for all who fear and are distressed. And you know this verse, Isaiah 41.10, when, when God just says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God personal. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. A good word for you when facing the impossible. God will hold on to you. There was an angel that came to Mary, told Mary that she was going to have an impossible pregnancy. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. This will happen to you. And you'll get a picture of God of the impossible coming up on the screen with Mary. For with God, nothing will 
be impossible. Now, we've talked about this. Mary believed this. Mary actually believed this. She was found faithful. Peter, when going through the impossible at the end of his life, crucified upside down, remained faithful. The God of the impossible was with him. James, the first disciple to get martyred, had his head lopped off by Herod Agrippa. That dude loves cutting heads off. John the Baptist, or excuse me, John the Apostle, was boiled in oil and exiled to Patmos, faithful. John the Baptist beheaded, faithful. Remember, if you're delivered or not, it's God's choice. He is sovereign. In the impossible, the important thing is that we may be found faithful. Faithful no matter what. In 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it is required of a steward that a man be found faithful. What is a steward? A caretaker of at least three things. Of what I have, all things come from God. I own nothing. We might as well just realize that. You think you're debt-free. It's good to be debt-free and all that. I think that's responsible living. But it's not mine. It is his. Have your hands open. I'm a, I'm a steward of what I have, what I, who I am. I'm a child of God. And what I do with my life, I am a steward of how I live out this life before the eyes of the living God. And folks, if you live like, the, like a steward of Christ, people will know something that you have been with Jesus. You are different because you have been with him. With God, all things are possible. We just need to believe it. Just that simple. Believe it until we're no longer here. Folks, when you have faith believing, this glorifies God. You find your purpose. And finally, we have a picture here that I'll end with. Instead of pushing the I am off, kick that dude over the cliff. And remember, all things are possible with God. All things. He's going to get you through. He'll change your situation it will get you through the situation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And Lord, your word touches each one of us, as I said earlier, in a different way. Different people hear different things. But Holy Spirit, you have spoken to each person here today. And I ask you to search the hearts of people. That our hearts will be soft and open and pliable to what you are saying to each one of us today. Lord, I pray, speak to us. May we hear from you things that you want us to hear. For people that are going through situations that are impossible in the natural, I pray that you'll fill them with your spirit and give them the encouragement to know that you are with them in the impossible. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.